Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, a previously unnoticed property of prime numbers seems to violate a long-standing assumption about how they behave. Also, a disarmingly simple model of ecology does everything well, except for predicting how rapidly nature can change. First, Mathematicians Discover Prime Conspiracy by Erica Clareish. Two mathematicians have uncovered a simple, previously unnoticed property of prime numbers those numbers that are divisible only by one and themselves. Prime numbers, it seems, have decided preferences about the final digits of the primes that immediately follow them. Among the first billion prime numbers, for instance, a prime ending in 9 is almost 65% more likely to be followed by a prime ending in 1 than another prime ending in 9. In a paper posted online, Kundan Soundarajan and Robert Lemke Oliver of Stanford University present both numerical and theoretical evidence that prime numbers repel other would-be primes that end in the same digit, and have varied predilections for being followed by primes ending in the other possible final digits. We've been studying primes for a long time and no one spotted this before, said Andrew Granville, a number theorist at the University of Montreal and University College London. It's crazy, he said. The discovery is the exact opposite of what most mathematicians would have predicted, said Ken Ono, a number theorist at Emory University in Atlanta. When he first heard the news, he said, I was floored. I thought, for sure your program's not working. This conspiracy among prime numbers seems, at first glance, to violate a long-standing assumption in number theory, that prime numbers behave much like random numbers. Most mathematicians would have assumed Granville and Ono agreed, that a prime should have an equal chance of being followed by a prime ending in 1, 3, 7, or 9. These are the four possible endings for all prime numbers except 2 and 5. I can't believe anyone in the world would have guessed this, Granville said. Even after having seen Lemke Oliver and Soundarajan's analysis of their phenomenon, he said, it still seems like a strange thing. Yet the pair's work doesn't append the notion that primes behave randomly, so much as point to how subtle their particular mix of randomness and order is. Can we redefine what random means in this context, so that once again, this phenomenon looks like it might be random, Sandarajan said? That's what we think we've done. Soundarajan was drawn to study consecutive primes after hearing a lecture at Stanford by the Cambridge mathematician Tadashi Tokieda, in which he mentioned a counterintuitive property of coin tossing. If Alice tosses a coin until she sees a head followed by a tail, and Bob tosses a coin until he sees two heads in a row, then on average, Alice will require four tosses, while Bob will require six tosses. Try this at home. Even though head tail and head head have an equal chance of appearing after two coin tosses. Soundarajan wondered if similarly strange phenomena appear in other contexts. 
since he has studied the primes for decades, he turned to them and found something even stranger than he had bargained for. Looking at prime numbers written in base 3, in which roughly half the primes end in 1 and half end in 2, he found that among primes smaller than 1,000, a prime ending in 1 is more than twice as likely to be followed by a prime ending in 2 than by another prime ending in 1. Likewise, a prime ending in 2 prefers to be followed by a prime ending in 1. Soundarajan showed his findings to postdoctoral researcher Lemke Oliver, who was shocked. He immediately wrote a program that searched much farther out along the number line, through the first 400 billion primes. Lemke Oliver again found that primes seemed to avoid being followed by another prime with the same final digit. The primes really hate to repeat themselves, Lemke Oliver said. Lemke Oliver and Soundarajan discovered that this sort of bias in the final digits of consecutive primes holds not just in base 3, but also in base 10, and several other bases. They conjecture that it's true in every base. The biases that they found appear to even out little by little as you go farther along the number line, but they do so at a snail's pace. It's the rate at which they even out which is surprising to me, said James Maynard, a number theorist at Oxford. When Soundarajan first told Maynard what the pair had discovered, I only half believed him, Maynard said. As soon as I went back to my office, I ran a numerical experiment to check this myself. Maybe a prime ending in 3, say, is more likely to be followed by a prime ending in 7, 9, or 1 merely because it encounters numbers with those endings before it reaches another number ending in 3. For example, 43 is followed by 47, 49, and 51 before it hits 53, and one of those numbers, 47, is prime. But the pair of mathematicians soon realized that this potential explanation couldn't account for the magnitude of the biases they found. Nor could it explain why, as the pair found, primes ending in 3 seemed to like being followed by primes ending in 9, more than 1 or 7. To explain these and other preferences, Lemke Oliver and Soundarajan had to delve into the deepest model mathematicians have for random behavior in the primes. Prime numbers, of course, are not really random at all. They are completely determined. Yet in many respects, they seem to behave like a list of random numbers, governed by just one overarching rule. The approximate density of primes near any number is inversely proportional to how many digits the number has. In 1936, Swedish mathematician Harold Cromier explored this idea using an elementary model for generating random prime-like numbers. At every whole number, flip a weighted coin, weighted by the prime density near that number, to decide whether to include that number in your list of random primes. Cromier showed that this coin-tossing model does an excellent job of predicting certain features of the real primes such as how many to expect between two consecutive perfect squares. Despite its predictive power, Cromier's model is a vast oversimplification. For instance, even numbers have as good a chance of being chosen as odd numbers, whereas real primes are never even, 
apart from the number two. Over the years, mathematicians have developed refinements of Cromer's model that, for instance, bar even numbers and numbers divisible by three, five, and other small primes. These simple coin-tossing models tend to be very useful rules of thumb about how prime numbers behave. They accurately predict, among other things, that prime numbers shouldn't care what their final digit is. And indeed, primes ending in 1, 3, 7, and 9 occur with roughly equal frequency. Yet similar logic seems to suggest that primes shouldn't care what digit the prime after them ends in. It was probably mathematicians' over-reliance on the simple coin-tossing heuristics that made them miss the biases in consecutive primes for so long, Granville said. It's easy to take too much for granted, to assume that your first guess is true, he said. The primes' preferences about the final digits of the primes that follow them can be explained, Sandarajan and Lemke Oliver found, using a much more refined model of randomness in primes, something called the prime K-tuples conjecture. Originally stated by mathematicians G.H. Hardy and J.E. Littlewood in 1923, the conjecture provides precise estimates of how often every possible constellation of primes with a given spacing pattern will appear. A wealth of numerical evidence supports the conjecture, but so far a proof has eluded mathematicians. The prime K-tuples conjecture subsumes many of the most central open problems in prime numbers, such as the twin primes conjecture, which posits that there are infinitely many pairs of primes, such as 17 and 19, that are only two apart. Most mathematicians believe the twin primes conjecture, not so much because they keep finding more twin primes, Maynard said, but because the number of twin primes they found fits so neatly with what the prime K-tuples conjecture predicts. In a similar way, Sandarajan and Lem K. Oliver have found that the biases they uncovered in consecutive primes come very close to what the prime K-tuples conjecture predicts. In other words, the most sophisticated conjecture mathematicians have about randomness in primes forces the primes to display strong biases. I have to rethink how I teach my class in analytic number theory now, Ono said. At this early stage, mathematicians say, it's hard to know whether these biases are isolated peculiarities or whether they have deep connections to other mathematical structures in the primes or elsewhere. Ono predicts, however, that mathematicians will immediately start looking for similar biases in related contexts, such as prime polynomials, fundamental objects in number theory that can't be factored into simpler polynomials. And the finding will make mathematicians look at the primes themselves with fresh eyes, Granville said. You could wonder, what else have we missed about the primes? Second, a timely fix for a grand theory of nature by Veronique Greenwood. In 2011, the ecologist Ryan Chisholm was looking at tree census data from 12 different forests around the world. More than 4,000 species of trees grew in these places, their numbers rising and falling over the years. 
The pictures the numbers painted were of ecosystems where a species' fortunes could change nearly overnight, on an ecological timescale. For instance, a small glossy-leaved tree called Inga marginita had 400 individuals in a Panamanian forest plot in 2005. By 2010, it had nearly doubled its numbers. In all 12 forests, however, one detail was particularly notable. The speed and magnitude of the changes didn't look anything like what would have been predicted by one of the leading theories in theoretical ecology. Models based on that idea, called neutral theory, have shown that the distribution of species over the landscape can be explained using surprisingly simple inputs. But here the theory was breaking down. You look at how big these fluctuations are, Chisholm said, and they're just enormous. They're so much bigger than what neutral theory would predict. Orders of magnitude bigger. When Chisholm gave a talk at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama where he was a postdoc, he learned that other people had noticed the same thing. Whatever its successes, neutral theory did not model change well at all. Even its estimates of how long it would take a species to go extinct could be tens to hundreds of times longer than the reality. A flurry of papers from various groups since then, including one by Chisholm and collaborators appearing yesterday in Ecology, look to answer the question, can neutral theory be adapted so that it shows changes over time? And is it possible to link a beautifully simple model more closely with the complex messiness of biology without damaging the model? In a neutral model, each individual in an ecosystem, regardless of the species, begins with the same fitness. As the years pass, metaphorical dice are rolled for each individual to decide whether it dies or reproduces. New individuals arrive from outside the community's borders, and every now and then a new species arises. Over time, the results of these processes accrete in this pocket universe. The model includes nothing about the differences between species, or about niches where one species might thrive while another fails, or about whether a hurricane or drought has struck. It just posits a certain pre-programmed randomness. After a while, ecologists studying this pocket universe might push the pause button and see how the area has evolved. Depending on how they've set up the model, the ecologist could look at how many individuals there are of each species, for example, or how the species have arrayed themselves across the landscape. For certain places, including tropical rainforests and coral reefs, the picture generated in this way looks strikingly similar to the observation of field biologists counting trees in remote jungles or coral species on the ocean floor. Neutral theory was a hit because it proposed that a lot of nature's complexity can be approximated, as a first approximation at least, by a very simple model which postulates that the luckiest, rather than the fittest, are the ones that survive and flourish. And all species are identical, said Michael Kalyuzny, a graduate student in theoretical ecology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. 
Surprisingly, this theory was very successful at explaining the commonness, rarity, and number of species in many ecological communities, he said. The theory's successes matter because they help ecologists understand what might be generating patterns in ecosystems. It's a mystifying fact, for instance, that the majority of tree species and rainforests around the globe are rare. One would expect that the rare species would be outnumbered and ultimately displaced by common species, but instead the rare species persist. Most ecological models can't mimic this situation, but it happens to be one of neutral theory's most triumphant successes, implying that the persistence of rarity doesn't require anything more complicated than randomness and the immigration of new species. Beyond its usefulness to basic science, understanding large-scale patterns in biodiversity has practical implications. If conservation managers have a more complete understanding of the distribution of rare and common species, they can better handle the ecosystems under their care, said Tuck Bung, a postdoc at Chisholm's lab at the National University of Singapore and the lead author of the new paper. But a neutral model only works if the static image ecologists see when they pause the simulation is all they are looking for. If they just want a snapshot. If, instead of looking at the model's general effect, they want to see how it behaves at multiple points over time, the resemblance to reality disintegrates. In the real world, cases like that of Inga Marginata, which doubled its numbers in five years, are common. But according to the neutral model, the chances that the tree will double its population from one census to another are around 1 in 10 to the 1,000th power, Chisholm calculates. Ridiculously small. We want to know what's missing, what kind of factors are driving these large fluctuations in species abundances, Fung said. Fung and others think that what's missing could be the effects of environmental changes a cold snap or heat wave or flood that can dramatically affect the fitness of a species. The idea is that these changes matter in the longer term, with the effects building up and spinning out to affect the evolution of the ecosystem. In the new study, the team focuses on two forests, one in Panama and one in Malaysia. Using census data spanning nearly 30 years, they present two contrasting models of each forest, one model is a neutral model, and the other includes extra variation intended to reflect environmental change. In the second model, instead of the dice being rolled for every individual in the forest, they're rolled for each species. If one individual of a given species has a bad year, all the members of that species will have a bad year. And if one individual has a good year, so does the whole species. The process is meant to reflect what might be happening when there's pervasive environmental change. For example, perhaps a drought hits the forest. A species that thrives in dryness will proliferate, while one that needs lots of water will fail to reproduce. If you think about what this means in a population of 1,000 individuals, Chisholm said, they can all have a good year and all reproduce, and then you get a big increase in population size or they can all have a bad year, and a bunch of them die and you get a big decrease. The researchers ran each of their simulations thousands of times to see what the range of outcomes were for each model. The work kept a computer cluster busy for months. Then they looked to see whether the real data from the forests, 
counts of trees painstakingly gathered across many hectares, fell within those ranges. Both models approximated the mix of rare and common species well, they found. The two models also predicted both the total number of species and the total number of individuals, but only the model with environmental variants could approximate the changes in each species' numbers over the years. It's an exciting finding for Kalyuzny, who was not involved in this work, as he and his colleagues have found something similar with another model that incorporates environmental change. Before these discoveries, no one knew whether the introduction of extra variation could reproduce the capabilities of neutral theory and also explain fluctuations. Now at least two groups have found that it can. The findings are part of a larger trend that promises to resolve neutral theory's problems with predicting how long a species will exist, said Steve Pakala, an ecologist at Princeton who's interested in neutral theory, although he does not focus on it himself. He notes that neutral theory and other ideas like it aren't necessarily popular with many ecologists. Biologists are taught to revere the particular, he said. To be a good field biologist, especially a tropical biologist, means to see something in a rainforest and identify what no one else can, or to discover something that is particular and new and beautiful and wonderful. Here you have a bunch of people who try to model the system as though absolutely none of the special qualities of organisms matter, and then get a fair amount of it right. I think the authors of the paper are really at the vanguard of that area. Although they continue to receive a fair amount of resistance, I think they're probably right, Pekala said. Still, the study leaves some important questions unanswered. Steve Hubble, an ecologist at UCLA, who first developed neutral theory, said that the paper and others like it show that taking environmental variants into account is necessary in order to make the theory work over time, at least for some species. Environmental variance seems to be more important in predicting the variation of common species than rare ones, he said, perhaps because the rare species are most sensitive to the kind of randomness that is already baked into neutral theory. But, he points out, the work does not explain what forms of environmental variation might have caused the change in population sizes. We don't learn anything from this paper about the source of this variance in terms of what's actually causing it, he said. I buy it. I think it's true. What does it tell me to do next? I don't know. There are a gazillion and one possible things that could be driving greater variance, and it's a non-trivial matter to figure out what the data would have to be in order to specify this or that mechanism, he said. So while the new models yield better predictions... They haven't yet descended from their 30,000-foot view of ecology to grapple with the intriguing question of cause and effect. It isn't clear which perturbations, floods, droughts, plagues of beetles, temperature rise, to name a few of nature's macabre possibilities, are expanding from their effects on individuals to shape an ecosystem over the long term. And where does the big picture painted by these theories fade into the detailed, messy, intricate world of field biology, where species might occupy a niche that no other can fill? It's an open question. Fung said that his group is considering how to test whether specific environmental changes can create the effects they see in their model.
It's a tricky question, he said. I think we need to be smart about picking the ones we want to focus on. Changes in temperature and precipitation are likely candidates, but the team will first need to decipher the relationships between these changes and the numbers used in their model. That is, to determine how rain or heat or storms affect the fitness of different species. In Fung's view, this work will unfold over the course of the next two decades. Adding more detail to neutral theory might seem to hamper what it's best at, the prediction of general patterns across many different ecosystems, but maybe that's an acceptable trade-off. James O'Dwyer, a theoretical ecologist at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, who is a co-author of the new paper, suggests that high-level ideas in ecology like neutral theory may be like the ideal gas law, an equation from physics that describes the general properties of gases very well. To make predictions about atypical systems, such as those at low temperatures or high pressures, scientists use another set of more specific laws. Developing adaptations to neutral theory may be necessary in the same way. Regardless of which models ultimately turn out to be the most successful, Chisholm said that the question of how environmental changes affect the diversity of species and ecosystems is growing more important all the time. If environmental variance is going to be increasing in the future, what is the effect on diversity going to be, he said. We really need good models of environmental variance if we're going to make predictions about ecosystems. Our work is a step in that direction. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Banu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.